Well, welcome everyone. I'm Tim Jamal. I'm the CEO of NAP SoCal. I'm very pleased to welcome everyone to our podcast series where we interview those who shape and drive commercial real estate in Southern California. NAP SoCal is the premier association representing commercial real estate throughout Los Angeles and Orange counties. We have more than 1,000 real estate executives and actually 1,100 now, more than 1,100 real estate professionals and executives that are part of NAP SoCal and 500 of the top commercial real estate firms in Southern California are part of our powerful network. Uh, we provide networking, education, and public policy advocacy for our members. And we have someone today who I'm, I'm very pleased to welcome uh, to the podcast, Malcolm Johnson. Uh, I've been wanting to do this for a while, and uh, we finally got Malcolm's uh, schedule to work out today. Um, Malcolm is the CEO of Langdon Park Capital, where he directs the company's overall strategy and operations. Uh, just a brief bio, and we'll get into it more during the conversation. Uh, previously, Malcolm was director of J.P. Morgan's commercial real estate group, where he led the firm's efforts on a new platform that deployed equity into affordable and workforce housing projects and markets across the country. Uh, Malcolm joined J.P. Morgan in, in 2012 as a senior coverage banker in the firm's real estate banking group in L.A., where he underwrote and arranged more than $3 billion in debt financing for institutional real estate developers and investment firms. And then prior to that, he worked for B of A or the B of A Merrill Lynch uh, in the commercial real estate banking group. And some of you know, but not all of you, uh, which is why this is exciting. Prior to Malcolm uh, went into banking, he played in the NFL, uh, professional football for Cincinnati Bengals, New York Jets, and Pittsburgh Steelers from 1999 to 2003. He got his MBA from uh, Carnegie Mellon and uh, Bachelor of Business Administration from Notre Dame. So uh, welcome with that. Uh, Malcolm, with that, I welcome you to the podcast. Tim, thank you very much. And first of all, I appreciate the chance to talk with you and the audience. Um, when you get an intro like that, it sounds a little bit like a, a eulogy. So <laughs> instead, I'd like to focus on um, the fact that I'm also a dad and, and uh, an active member of the community and still have lots and lots of goals and dreams to go after. Um, all that stuff you just listed is in the rearview mirror, and that's that's one of the things that I'm excited to talk to you about, um, kind of what li what lies ahead. <clears throat> well, let's we're we're gonna get to that, I promise you. But I wanna I wanna talk I wanna find out a little bit more about Malcolm and how you became who you are today. Um, so tell our listeners uh, a bit about where you grew up and what that was like. Yeah, I, I will say, and this is probably true for, for most folks, you know, my, my formative years were probably what shaped me the most. And I was I was blessed because I grew up in a family that was focused on on um, a few things as, as our core values. One was just um, love for self and love for others. And, and we really didn't distinguish between the two. Um, I grew up in a, a strong two parent household. Um, education was at the center of everything my parents stressed, and not just education in the classroom. Um, I was born and raised in Washington, D.C. in the 1980s and 90s, um, and, and that education extended from, from extra book reports in the summer to, um, to STEM camps before they had a name for STEM camps. Um, I actually was forced to skip a grade when I was, when I was seven years old because my dad, uh, my dad said, well, you know, you already did all all the second grade work the summer before, so we're just gonna skip you straight to third grade. Um, oh no! <laughs> yeah, that's ex that's exactly what I said. But if you if you knew my dad, you, you'd also know there was no there was no turning him down. Um, and so that's really what shaped me and and my younger brothers. We also happened to to be raised at a time when when Washington D.C. was and still is, um, but at the time uh, it was a very politically aware city. For, for black residents. Um, the, the, the town was primarily black and that means everything from the police chief to all of our elected officials to uh, unfortunately the drug dealers who, who um, became more and more prevalent as the crack, crack epidemic hit our city. But that gave us a really good perspective on um, the landscape of black Americans. And, and so I got to see a lot of soci soci 
sociology up close and personal. In addition to majoring in business in college, I minored in sociology and just fascinating to me to see um, so much of what what capitalism unintended and intended consequences could play out, how that played out in, in our community specifically. So that in a lot of ways shaped, shaped what I'm doing now um, from a professional standpoint. Hey Malcolm, uh, where did you did you live in the district, or where did you where did you grow up? I I actually lived in D.C. for um, about twelve years, moved there in the late '80s, so um, kind of familiar with the landscape. Okay, so yes, yeah, so I did grow up in Washington D.C., and again, this was this was at a time when if you said you're from D.C., you actually had to be from D.C. Um, now now the city the city's boundaries have expanded a bit. The D.M.V. didn't exist. When I lived there, District Maryland, Virginia was not was not a concept um, that any of us were familiar with. I was born born in um, and in at Washington Hospital and um, was raised in Northeast DC. My um, my local recreation recreation center was Langdon Park Rec Center, which is right on um, right on Twentieth Street near. Ah, that's that's the name. I was going to ask you about the name. That's right. Um, and and I can I can remember early mornings. My dad was an athlete in college. He was uh, an avid fitness enthusiast, and and we jogged. Uh, it was voluntary, mandatory, <laughs> five a.m. workout sessions from the time I was about nine years old uh, up until I graduated from high school. So we we jogged every morning at, at five. Wow! Uh, and my my kids my kids think I'm harsh. No, no way. <laughs> Yeah, and it was it was it was the best thing for me, and I love my dad for um, for making us come along with him. But I can remember early mornings outside um, the monastery, if you know what that is, in Northeast DC. And yeah, yeah, I do. Past Catholic University, and um, and all this was before before the crack of dawn. So again, that was that was preparation for a lot of the habits that I've taken with me into adulthood, and and much to my kids' chagrin, parenthood. Um, but yeah, that that was that was home base, and and my heart. It's still in Northeast DC, even though the city has changed tremendously since since I left home for college. Yeah, no, it, it's. Uh, I mean, I used to. Well, we won't get into my. Yeah, I. I uh, but I, I, I used to work in Silver Spring for about four years, so I would drive to the capital from Silver Spring. Sometimes I take the red line, but sometimes I would drive down, so I'd go right through Northeast DC. Okay, so yeah, you know my neighborhood well. Actually, I went to high school about about 10 blocks away from the capital so um so we got we got this experience all of the city and um, i wouldn't i wouldn't trade it for anything it really shaped me as a man and um, i'm so incredibly grateful to have had that experience well can i can i i mean maybe it's presumptuous but was was your dad a role model for you without question and and in every way um my dad was uh an entrepreneur and a businessman at the time that that um my brothers and I lived at home. He actually ran an, an independent insurance brokerage and um, kind of found his calling a little bit later in life, which, you know, just a testament to, to him and um, and his fortitude. My mom's a pediatrician, so we uh, we never got to skip school because of a, a, a quote-unquote stomachache or my head hurts. She, she would pull out the, the stethoscope and the thermometer and... and uh, so I have perfect attendance in school, not because you're, you're okay. You that's right. That's right. Um, but but they were both role models in every way. Um, again, super focused on on academics and making sure we excelled in the classroom. And and this is the part that you know I didn't necessarily appreciate them, but certainly do now. They always they always taught us to um, question and ask why. Ask why. Um, history books were written the way that they were, ask why the lesson plan was organized the way that it was, and, and often that manifested itself in, okay, here's the teacher's assignment, and you got to go a step beyond that, <laughs> and, here's, and here's your assignment, which, um, you know, I, did, I didn't always love, um, especially in classes that I didn't love, but it, um, it really shaped the way, the way I look at the world, the way I think about investing, the way um, I think about ingesting knowledge, Today, you know, at, at that time, if you remember, Tim, you know, if it was on the nightly news or if it was in the encyclopedia, that was a fact. And yep. so my parents were very adamant that, you know, it's not, I saw it on TV, so it must be true. Or I read it in this book, 
So it must be true. My teacher said it, so it must be true. We had we had um, we had to go check sources and verify, and um, you know we had to learn the difference between a fact and opinion at a very early age. And and again, I'm so grateful that that, that was something that was always stressed in our home. So, I mean, what did you do for fun? I know you were jogging at 5 a.m. <laughs> get into the athletic stuff, but it, I mean, there's a lot of stuff around the D.C. area, you know, Rock Creek Park. I mean, you know, uh, areas you can explore. Uh, did you do any, what, what kind of stuff? Did you, did you have, by the way, did you have brothers and sisters? Two younger brothers. Uh, one, of, one of my brothers is three years younger than I am, and another is, is nine years younger than I am. We were all incredibly close. Um, as, as luck would have it, I still don't know how my parents pulled this off. My brother, my brother Adam, who's three years younger than I am, he shares, he shares the same birthday with me. So, so I never got a birthday party alone. I never got, <laughs> I never got to celebrate solo, but that was, that was the best thing. He and I, he and I are, are incredibly close and um, really we are like twins in so many ways. In fact, I tell him all the time that I, I look up to him for, for uh, yeah, he's got the, the classic middle child temperament. Um, He's a, he's an amazing leader in his own right. And, um, yeah, so, so that was, it was not unique to have, you know, close knit family, but it was unique to have the family structure that we did in the neighborhood that we did. You know, my, my parents, again, very well educated. They met as college sweethearts at, at university of Pennsylvania and my mom, when she was in medical school at uh, Columbia, she made a very conscious decision that she didn't want to go practice uh, on the Upper West Side. She didn't. She didn't want to treat um, the kids of rich families. She she wanted to to uh, have her practice be in a community where she could treat um, lots and lots of, of black and brown babies. And so she did a residency um, in in West Baltimore, and that meant our family moved to Washington D.C. Um, just as I was being born. So you know that was. I mean. That, that sense of responsibility and consciousness has, has lived in our, our household forever. Um, but you said, what I do for fun? Everything. DC at the time when, when I was there was, um, it really was a, a big flower bed. Um, so everything from, from roller skating to crystal skate, which is a um, skate park just outside Washington, DC and Prince George's County, to ride my bike over to Rock Creek Park. Um, yeah up to Fort Lincoln, which is, which is right on the DC, Maryland border, um, for cookouts and sports, obviously. I was a huge sports fan and still am, but I did every single sport you can imagine except boxing and baseball. I was, I was number one, afraid of getting hit in the face with the baseball. So, <laughs> so I, I never, I never even went out for, um, for the, the little league baseball team in my neighborhood. Yeah, ne never, never mind the middle linebacker, but that baseball. Yeah, I, I just, I just figured if you got pads on, you got, you got a shot at maybe protecting yourself. So it was football, karate, basketball, swimming, tennis. We did all of that at the local rec center. And, and the thing that stands out to me now, Tim, is the fact that all of those teams and, and all of the, the summer programs that we participated in at the rec center, all of them were led by mostly volunteers. You know, you had two or three folks on staff who were employed by Parks and Rec, but most of them were just working parents who decided they wanted to give to the community and pour into young people. And um, I'm so appreciative for all of, all of those coaches. And I can still remember you know, my karate instructor and, and, um, and the, the, the head librarian who you know, basically had to babysit me every day after school because that was my first time. My parents said, go to the library, get your homework done, then you get to come home. Um, and then, then after you've prepared, you've prepared a snack for your younger brother, then you can go outside and play with your buddy. So I remember all of that and, and DC was an amazing place. Um, uh, despite the fact that again, the, the war on drugs, um, oh, it, was, it was terrible. I was there in the late, late eighties. Yeah, it was There was significant racial tensions, uh, mm -hmm. and the, the drugs were pervasive. It was not a good situation time in DC. That's right. I, I will also say one of the things that shaped, shaped my experience in the city was um, leaving my neighborhood to go to high school. And, and I didn't have to go that far, but you know, you think about what, what your, your world looks like when you are junior high school, elementary school, it's just a couple block radius. You know, you may take a, we used to spend the summers 
with our grandparents down in Atlanta. So that was that was an annual trip outside the city. But for the most part, you know, I lived in in a six or seven block radius. And and when I graduated from eighth grade, my parents insisted that I look at some of the best schools in the city. And um, and the school that they eventually chose for me, I didn't I didn't select on my own because it was it was all boys. It was Jesuit. Um, my family my family was not Catholic, although I'd gone to Catholic school for junior high. But um, ultimately, I enrolled at Gonzaga College High School, which is um, in the heart of Northwest DC. I had to take a bus and a subway every day to get to school, and I got to meet people from all over the city, from Northern Virginia, from, from Montgomery County, from places that I'd never explored as a, as a young teenager. And, you know, I was in class with the, the, vice, the vice president's son was a classmate of mine. In addition to, you know, we had four-star generals with kids in school with us, uh, working class families, you name it. It was a total, total population at that time, about 850 students, so all boys. Um, and, and a was great, it diverse, Malcolm? I mean, uh, to some degree, to some yeah. degree, it, w- it was diverse because the Jesuit ethos is meant for others. And so although the majority of the class was, was primarily Caucasian, we did have uh, about 10 to 15 percent of the student body was was black. And um, I, I stepped outside of my comfort zone, though, because I didn't I didn't have any interaction with people who didn't look exactly like I did prior to high school. But, you know, I was a very social kid. I played basketball, football, and ran track. And so my teammates came from all kinds of different backgrounds. And it was one of the best experiences that I could have ever had. And it really prepared me for being able to to leave home for college. Um, You know, I felt a lot more comfortable when I left D.C. to go to school um, at the University of Notre Dame because I'd had that experience of, of just being around different types of, of people and recognizing uh, the humanity that, that lives in all of us. So that was, that was a real turning point. And, and that turned out to be one of the, the best experiences of, um, of my life. Just, just going to high school it was in the city, but it was worlds away from, from where I grew up in Northeast DC. And I loved, I loved most of it. I, I will say the first year and a half, you know, you, you go to school with all boys and <laughs> <laughs> you know, just just think of yourself at age thirteen if um, yeah. if that would have been like your favorite thing to go do. But you know, eventually we 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 um, we figured out that you know <laughs> girls will come to the to the football and basketball games, and, and um, you can you can find other ways to interact with opposite sex. But it was a great it was a great experience, and, and I learned a lot about myself and about the world um, in high school. So that's fascinating. You know, my kids are older, so I was one of the questions I was going to ask you is, you know, was it all football all the time? Like, I don't know, at some point, but I, I you know, I see today um, I coach my kid in, you know, Pop Warner and Junior All-American. And I see a lot of parents, particularly dads, just happens to be who are really focused um, on, you know, athletics and football in this case to um, advance their, you know, career education, your parents were focused on education. And so um, how did the interplay, how did, you know, when did football surface is like, hey, this is like, hey, this, this is going to happen. And did it just happen naturally? Because it looks like, you know, you were focused on education, your parents were really focused on ensuring you, you, you got a great education. So yeah, that that was definitely that was definitely the biggest the biggest focal point for our family. But um, I would say football came into the picture very late as as something that I would do professionally. I, I started playing football when I was nine years old, um, just with the neighborhood the neighborhood um, youth team, and it was mostly because all my friends were on the team, and you know I, we we graduated from playing playing football in the street after school. Um, to then tackle football, and I wasn't very good. <laughs> I was I was tall and skinny and not that fast, but I just loved 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 being on a team. And so when it was football season, we played football. When it was basketball season, we played basketball. Um, at the same time, we were doing karate and and I swam and something like we did everything. And I remember I remember going to to 
uh, my high school for freshman year. And um, again, I wasn't very good as a, as a junior high school player, but Gonzaga, the high school I went to, um, had a good athletic tradition, but it was not a powerhouse at the time. It is now. It's become a, a real powerhouse in football and basketball, but at the time it wasn't. And um, my dad said, okay, we'll go off for the team and, and it'll be a great chance for you to go meet new classmates. And I'll never forget, Tim, the first day of practice, the the head coach, and I played freshman football, and then I played JV football the year after. That's unheard of at this point. Like the best athletes all play varsity yep. on their first year. But I played freshman football, but the head coach. <laughs> so there were like 50 or 60 kids trying out for the team. And he said, okay, so whatever position you think you are, everybody, quarterbacks go here, defensive linemen go here, wide receivers go here. And on my junior, on, on my, my little league football teams, because I wasn't very good, they stuck me on the offensive and defensive line, which is usually where you put the, the, <laughs> yes, the non-athletic kids if, if, you, if you follow you sports. And so I was like, first of all, the same height I am now, six foot five, but I was about 165, 170 pounds. That's and pretty I, skinny. That's very, pretty- very skinny. And I said, you know what, this is my chance to go be uh, Art Monk. Art Monk was the, the star receiver for the Washington football team at the time. So I said, I'm going to go play wide receiver. I had never played receiver. Um, and and I just, I don't know how it happened, but I, I ended up um, as, as the starting wide receiver. We didn't throw the ball a lot. Um, but, you know, I, I had a little bit of success as a freshman. I, I started to grow into my body. Um, my sophomore year was better. And then just it's always it's always about you know some of the, the mentors and coaches who come into your life and help build you. Um, right after my sophomore year, our team got a new head football coach from a school that had been a powerhouse. So this coach is now in the, the, the Hall of Fame in Washington D.C. He coached several pros and and college all Americans and high school all Americans, and all of a sudden he was coaching at Gonzaga and right in going into my junior year. And one of the first things he did was sit down with me and, uh, and he put on a tape of, of a player who from my neighborhood had played at his old school, who was like a hero to the entire neighborhood, a guy named Lawrence Moten, who is still the all-time leading scorer in Big East basketball. And Lawrence Moten played football and basketball, and he was an amazing football player. He put on a tape of, of Lawrence um, from football highlights. And he said, this is the best I've ever coached. And I think you got a chance to be um, pretty good. And then he rewound the tape and he said, again, this is the best I've ever coached. And I think you have a chance to be pretty good. And, and that just, I took those uh, words to me. How, he, he how old were you when he said that? How I, was, I was 14 years old. And, um, and that, that was the best motivation. If you think about how you can lift people and, and you know, go, go set them on a path that coach's name was Moss Collins. And I, I, from that moment forward, I started writing down goals about what I wanted to accomplish in football. I, I, I didn't go out for the, the basketball team my junior year. I, I played basketball and football up to that point, but I said, I'm going to focus on football. And, and I had a pretty good junior season and a really, really good senior season. And kind of the rest is history, but I, I credit um, my father who became my um, basically my personal trainer um, through my my junior and senior year in high school and and that coach for helping me helping me realize my potential as as a as a player and it was not something that I would have thought was possible two or three years prior. Well, um, so you then yeah that's awesome. Uh, so you picked a school that's kind of a lightning rod in terms of athletics. Uh, you know, a lot of people love him. A lot of people don't. Uh, why did, why did you, why did you pick Notre Dame? You know, that's funny. A lot of people don't I often wonder why, why would you not like that university? I mean, it's, it's a values based institution. They are the winningest program in college football history. Most Heisman trophy women winners in college football history. Um, the, the university's football program, at least is, is just synonymous with success. And so, <laughs> I, I always find inspiration in those sorts of institutions, like whether it's the Yankees, the Dodgers, the Lakers, Notre Dame football, like the best is the best. And, and some things you just can't deny. And, and you know, I, may, I may make a lot of 
USC fans upset with that, but you know, the number, <laughs> the, the, what's the saying? Men lie, women lie, numbers don't. And so um, that was it. I, I actually, I did, I did, this is a true story. My, my number one choice out of high school was actually USC though. Um, I was on my, my final five. Um, and really? Yeah, and I, I really wanted to come play for the Trojans, but my dad, <laughs> my dad is, um, and, and was and, and still is the most influential person in my life. He was insistent. He was insistent that I'd be at a place that um, could be great on academics, great on the field. But even more than I could have gotten that at USC, obviously. But even more than that, he wanted to be close. He wanted me to be close enough so that he could drive and go see games. And and we kind of settled on on Notre Dame. It was nine hour drive from Washington D.C. So I'm like, all right, we'll just it's far enough that he can't just pop up on me unannounced, but it's close enough that he can be there pretty frequently. And, and um, the rest is history. I, I, didn't, I didn't know a lot about life in Northern Indiana. Um, you know, I, I'd been at a Catholic school for high school and, and junior high before that. So I kind of understood what, what a values-based education would be like, but it was, um, it was a great experience in so many ways, primarily because I got to be around again um, different types of people. Um, I was I was far away enough from home that I and this was before obviously social media. So I was not I was not nearly as connected as like my kid. My oldest is now a sophomore in college, but I didn't have the ability to FaceTime my friends back home every day. I wasn't I wasn't checking their social media feed to see what everybody was up to. I, I really had to grow with the people that were in school with me and. Um, it was it was a great learning experience in the classroom, socially, and obviously, the football program um, was was among the best in the country every year that I, that I played there. So, um, I, I would I would do it all over again just the same way, and it turned out to to, to be um, a real game changer for me, life life wise. Well, I just drove through Northern Indiana last week. I was uh, in Chicago, and we have a family longtime family home in northern Michigan. So I drove from Chicago to uh, northern Michigan through northern Indiana. I'm guessing you didn't see much on on, um, on the interstate as you were driving. No, not yeah, much. And, 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 and Indiana is like a spit of a, you know, terrain. It's like you're through it in about a, a few minutes before you get to, to Michigan. That's right. That's right. But it was, it was, um, it was a special place and, and will always be a special place. I'm, I'm actually Fortunate, I sit on the board for Notre Dame's real estate school now, so I get a chance to interact with the university's leadership team pretty frequently. Um, so it, it, it's been and will continue to be um, a big part of my family's life. I actually met my wife at Notre Dame. Uh, my kids' godparents are, are Notre Dame grads, just like we are. It's, uh, it's a special place. Well, I want to, I want to, I want, I want to get to the forward stuff, but I, I can't. Uh you know, what you're doing today. I know that's what you're most passionate about um, at Langdon Park. But let, let's, I wanted to ask you what, because you probably get asked this so many times about your NFL experience, but what what can you tell us about the NFL that we may not already know? You know, surprisingly, Tim, and, and it was definitely a shock to me. It was a shock to me because, you know, right around the time that I described that, that meeting with my, my high school coach when I was 14 years old, I started to, to set myself on this path. And I said, I want to go play in college and I want to play in the National Football League. And, and these are the steps to do it. I, I started to prepare myself physically and probably more importantly, mentally for, for um, that type of success. And um, it was something that I was very intentional about trying to make happen. There are no guarantee that it would, but obviously, you know, you increase your chances when you when you go to a school like Notre Dame that's produced so many great pros, and I got to play for some amazing coaches with um, the best teammates. But when I got to, to the NFL, I realized that not everyone who was there absolutely loved football. It was it was a place where you generally had these amazing athletes. So, and when I say didn't love football, like think of somebody who is six foot seven and 340 pounds. So that's a, a huge human being and also happens to be a great athlete. So that's a huge human being who's, who's nimble and athletic and strong. 
and they've probably been pretty big since they were like 11 or 12 years old. And what I discovered was that there were a number of guys like that who were just great athletes, but they weren't passionate about football. Like in, in the NFL, your off day is Tuesday uh, because, you know, naturally right. most games on Sunday, a uh, handful of games are played on Monday. At that time, now you got games on Thursdays as well. But 20 plus years ago, you only played two days a week, either Sunday or Monday. So around the league, Tuesday was an off day. But, you know, when you're a football player or a pro athlete in any sport, I always thought you don't have an off day. Like Tuesday is the day you go in, you watch extra film, you're going to go work out on your own. Um, you prepare for Wednesday and Thursday, which are the most important practice days of the week, especially for a guy like me who was, you know, an NFL guy. I was just a journeyman, barely on the team. So I had to, I had to work really hard in practice just to, to stick around. But it surprised me that Tuesday for a lot of guys would be like, I'm completely I'm not even thinking about football on Tuesday. I'm going fishing. I'm doing whatever I'm doing. I'm going to, I'm flying out of town. This is the day I'm, I'm flying to Las Vegas or I'm yep. going to go hang out in Atlanta. I played in Pittsburgh my, my rookie year. So it was mostly guys leaving to go to, to uh, Atlanta. And I, I just couldn't, but then it, it dawned on me and that, that was a great lesson for life. Like you, you'll, I realized that too at, at, um, in, the, in the professional world outside of football. Not everyone truly loves what it is that they do every day. And those who, who can be incredibly passionate about what it is that they do every day, those are typically the ones who find the most joy and success by their definition. I'm not talking about, you know, success as defined by the outside world. But if you're passionate about something and, and it's really, you know, you feel like it's a, it's, a, it's a gift that you get to go do it every day, that's why Tom Brady is still playing at 45 years old because obviously he loves football. That's why, that's why Kobe Bryant played well into his 30s. That's why Peyton Manning played professional football after breaking his neck. Like, think about that. You know, he's, he's won three MVPs and Super Bowls and, and has every passing record in the National Football League's history. And then he breaks his neck. And he says, but I love it so much that I want to come back and scale a mountain again, but not everybody at that level is like that. That's why there's only one Tom Brady and there's only one Peyton Manning. So that was an eye opener for me, but it also turned out to, you know, gave me a tremendous advantage because I did love it. I, I, I did love the competition. Um, I love being on a team. I loved every part of, of the game. And um, there's nothing got, like camaraderie. I mean, I didn't play in the NFL, but I played a lot of athletics and I, you know, been around my son who played college baseball. I mean, there's I, there's nothing like the camaraderie of football, in my view. That's right. That's right. And and it's the, it's the unfortunate part of the, or the the bad side of football is that it is a brutally violent sport. Next, I can't think of anything anything that's worse on your body than maybe boxing. It's, it's probably worse. But football really requires the ultimate mental, emotional, and physical toughness. I mean, you gotta, you will, you will get hit. It hurts to hit somebody almost as much as it hurts to get hit. And you have to have the physical courage to do both of those things. And then you got to get back up, walk to the line of scrimmage and go do it again, again. five more times. Um, but you got, you got 10 teammates on the field with you who are counting on you to go do it again and again. So, you know, your point about camaraderie is absolutely right. You, you have, you know, 10 people who trust you, that you will go do it again and you'll do it even if it does hurt. And there's nothing like succeeding as a team. Uh, and football is, is definitely the ultimate team sport. So were you ready to leave? I mean, did you, were you mentally accepting of leaving the NFL when you did? Um, mentally, yes. Emotionally, no. And, and I say that because, like I, like I pointed out earlier, I was so focused on, on being the best professional athlete that I could be. It was, it was how I you know, trained, how I ate, how I slept. Um, my, whole, my whole world was centered on, on that. And emotionally, I had not prepared myself for stepping outside of that space. You know, you think about the friend circles that you, that you build as a college student athlete. You know, 95% of my friends were also athletes. 
my professional circles once I became a pro. 100% of my friends were, were fellow <laughs> pro football players. And so mentally, I knew that the game was over for me, and I, and I, I did make the decision to retire. I, I played three years in the, in the NFL and a year in the Canadian Football League. So that kind of, that was my, <laughs> that was a big hit that, okay, you're going, you're going backwards. Your career's not progressing the way you wanted to, and, and you're generally pretty healthy. Now's the time to walk away. But emotionally, I didn't anticipate just how much I would miss um, being around such a committed group of, of humans, um, all with, with one goal in mind, and the competition is nothing like um, competing on game day. So, you know, that took a while. That took a while and, and so much so that I actually worked really hard to distance myself from the game for a period of time um, after, I, after I left pro football because I, I really wanted to explore who I was and, and and where I could apply my, my skill set um, outside of what I've been doing for the previous you know, eight, nine years of my life. Well, that's a perfect segue to talk about your, ne- your next phase after the NFL, which was banking and commercial real estate. How did that happen? So again, I, I pretty quickly realized one, that I needed a technical skill set to move, to move beyond just being a pro athlete. And, and once, I, once I came to grips with the fact that, you know, football was just something that I did, it wasn't who I was, I had, I had a much better outlook on how to go prepare myself for what was next. Like, I just need to go get a technical skill set and figure out where I can apply this talent. And that led me to business school. Um, and I, I purposely chose the most quantitatively challenging program I could get into that was Carnegie Mellon, and I was in class with a lot of mechanical engineers and electrical engineers and computer scientists who were amazing at, at helping support me at a time in my life when I needed it the most. And I got that, I, I considered business school to be my real college experience. You know, I, I, like I said, I love Notre Dame, but I didn't interact with the, the broader student body very much. Um, and, so when I was in business school, I jumped into everything. I was, I was president of the Black Business Student Association. I was president of the marketing club. I, I was a student ambassador for, for uh, firms that came to campus to hire, hire students. Like it was, it was everything that I probably should have been doing in college if I didn't have a 75 hour a week full-time job <laughs> playing, playing football. But um, that led me to, and because I, I was fortunate, I, I, I you know, built up enough of a nest egg. I didn't have to go to work at anything that I didn't really want to do. And mm-hmm. you know, most of my classmates were seeking like just the highest paying job. And, and it was, that was never the goal for me. I wanted to do something where I could have a sense of fulfillment and, and where I could be interested and passionate. And so banking for me was that because, and this is a very simple, <laughs> I was like, I, I want to explore the macro economy, but I want it to be kind of applied business. And the best way to get close to business owners and entrepreneurs is to work at the place that has the most capital because everybody needs a relationship with capital. <laughs> so it's just a very simple, I'm like drawing a direct line. Um, and, and so that was what led me to become a banker. And, and then just, just like I was describing my high school experience with that coach about being lucky, the very first rotation at the bank that I joined after graduating from Carnegie Mellon was in commercial real estate. And this was 2006. But was this intentional or it just happened? I mean, to some degree, I'd done an internship at a bank and I worked in their, in their real estate division. Um, but, you know, like I, I was in a rotational program, so I could have ended up in any line of business, but real estate was the first one. And because I was relatively new, you know, I, I hadn't, outside of that one internship when I was in, in business school, I hadn't worked in um, a corporate setting. You know, I was coming in early and leaving late every day just to play catch up to everybody. And the, the real estate market at the time was so hot. I was, I was with, I joined Bank of America. Well, nothing's and, changed. That's right. That's right. And, and, you know, everything moves in cycles. And we were doing so much volume. We, we banked um, some of the biggest clients on the West Coast that um you know i'm learning a tremendous amount and uh the the guy running the group after two and a half months said well you know it looks like you really love real estate you show up early and you leave late and you know 
thinking to myself, I have to do that because I'm I'm still learning what a cap rate is. That's why I gotta come early and leave late. But I said, yep, I do, and and I did I did really enjoy it. And so he said, well, you know, you don't have to go through the rest of the rotation if you don't want to. You can just stay here. We need another banker, and that was that set me on a completely different trajectory. And from there, I focused on all the things about commercial real estate that that most of us love. It really is the built environment. It's um, it's a chance to see the macro economy play out in real time, where everything from interest rates to public policy to job job creation, you name it, all of it exists inside of commercial real estate. So that's what kept me interested in. There's so many smart entrepreneurs and and just dreamers in our business. Um, so you know, I never looked back. I never looked back, and and I've, I've obviously spent um, my entire professional career since then in the same space. Well, Malcolm, let me ask you this. I know you're, you know, growing up, you had your father and your family uh, as guide guideposts and role models. When you first started out, when you transitioned from the NFL and you went and ended up in banking, commercial real estate, real estate, were there, did you have any, you know, people who were role models or who helped guide you or were you, you know, you'd been, you'd already been through enough of experiences, you know, Notre Dame and then the NFL, did you get help? Uh, were people helpful to you that With, are notable? Without question. Without question. And, and that's, that's probably the biggest reason I found some success because um, I, I had mentors and colleagues and probably just as important clients who were, who were willing to be champions uh, for me. And, and without, without those individuals, I know I would not have been able to, to, find success. And I wouldn't have loved the work as much as I did. So, you know, a handful of senior, senior leaders at Bank of America uh, were instrumental in, in helping me learn the business. Um, and especially through the, the great financial crisis, which happened, you know, just a year and a half after I joined B of A. That's when I really started to look at our clients for kind of insight into what made the best in the business the best. And, and how some of those those clients behaved in what was and hopefully will will be the worst financial downturn in, in our country's history um, was so instrumental. So you know, I, without those those companies and those individuals as a blueprint, I'm certain I would not have advanced as, as quickly um, as I did. So yes, th those those um, those flashpoints were and are instrumental. And, and my growth. Okay, well, let's um, let's let's go forward. Let's talk about today. So, um, tell 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 us about the vision and mission, the mission and vision of Langdon Park Capital. So, going back to what I said about the way the way my brothers and I were raised and where we were raised, the vision. And the mission began long before I knew I was even going to work in commercial real estate or banking or asset management uh, or real estate private equity. The manifestation of that, though, is what Langdon Park Capital does. So, so structurally, we look a lot like many real estate investment management firms. We've, we've raised outside capital and um, paired with our own capital, we are investing in commercial real estate. Um, in a way that produces strong, durable returns for investors and, and ourselves, obviously. But our biggest differentiator is that we do that by looking into black and Latino communities in high growth areas around the country and determining how we can not just add value to the real estate, but create opportunities for the families who live and work in those communities. And that creates, um, that creates a better, more virtuous outcome for all stakeholders. So that's, that's our big differentiator because there are not many capitalists who think that way. Um, you know, we, we really focus on trying to build bridges versus building a bigger moat. One of the things that I learned while working at, at two of the world's best run and largest financial institutions is that, you know, access to capital and opportunity is really what separates the winners and the losers in our, in our, um, economic machine. There, there's no difference in aptitude. There's no difference in work ethic. 
there's no difference in the dreams we have for our children. It's just, do we have access to um, education and opportunity and capital that allows us to go achieve? And so when we invest in, in workforce housing, our first, our first uh, fund is all around rental housing. We think about some of the, the drivers for these so the social challenges that exist in places like South LA or, or uh, greater Washington, DC or Oakland. And a lot of them are because there's been disinvestment. So, so instead of just saying this piece of real estate is valuable because I can buy this apartment building for slightly less than I'd be able to buy the same apartment building in West Hollywood or downtown Santa Monica, we look at the reasons why that building is, is slightly less. Because if you look at an aerial map, you'd say South LA is close to a freeway, it's close to the Pacific Ocean. Yeah, but the schools are poor performing or they have challenges with crime or there's no, there's no healthy growth there. So, you know, our part as a real estate operator is to make sure the real estate is functional and it's safe and, um, and it, it, it works for residents who live there. But then we go a step beyond and try to connect the right social services partner with our property to ensure that some of those social needs are met. And that in turn does two things. One, it ultimately increases the value of, of our assets, but two, it provides more opportunity for people who live in our buildings. And they too get to participate in continued growth. Um, so it really is a win-win. It's, it's a unique way to think about creating value. And, and I'll say this last too, Tim. I, I'm well aware that many investors can kind of see that thesis when I lay it out, but most, at least at this institutional level, don't have um, the lived experience that, that I do, don't have the li lived experience that our team does. So, so I've been very intentional about building a team that has, number first and foremost, you know, decades of, of expertise in real estate finance, best in class asset management, best in class acquisition, best in class um, in, in uh, mergers and acquisition. We have all of that on the Langdon Park Capital team, but every one of our team members also has the, the experience of being a diverse leader at their previous organization, of growing up in communities that may, that may have had some of these same sorts of social challenges. And so we bring that perspective to how we, how we can go create value at our properties. And that really is the biggest differentiator. It's one of the reasons we found so much success this early in the company's history, because there are not a lot of, of groups that look like us that have this sort of focus um, intentionally on creating opportunity alongside creating value. Well, first of all, I mean, I think it's an amazing strategy and the fact that you're able to, to uh, that it seems to, that is, it is succeeding. Uh, I'm so impressed. Uh, but I was also, I was amazed. I mean, I, you know, you and I are talking today. We, I think it's been about a year and a half since we were able to speak before. Um, and I got your note, your email or whatever, your announcement when you started Langdon Park. Um, I've been, I was so impressed how fast you assembled this team. And, uh, uh, and, and, and I'll be honest, I, I took a look at it. You have a very diverse team. <laughs> um, how did you pull it together so quickly? I mean, you hear, you hear the horror stories today. People can't, you know, it takes months and months to hire one person, you know, whether it's an asset manager or another level, you were able to pull this off. I mean, what I've seen in, in lightning, lightning speed. So, so I'll say this too, and and those of us who who sit, you know, who who's been in in the position I've been in, will know that it's true. There are very few spaces inside corporate America, and and probably even fewer inside of commercial real estate, where you can um, directly affect number one your company's bottom line, and also be authentically who you are and have that be one of the differentiators for you. So what I just laid out in terms of what Langdon Park Capital does, that is so unique in the commercial real estate space that attracting the best talent who happens to be diverse actually was, was I'm not gonna say it was easy, but it was much easier given 
given number one, we, we were able to start with incredible support from amazing partners um, and, and investors. So we could be institutional almost from day one, but you know, asking somebody who spent, as an example, you know, our, our head of our head of acquisition um, spent close to 20 years at J.P. Morgan in the investment bank, uh, asset management. He worked in the community development banking group. Prior to that, he spent 10 years as a commercial appraiser. Um, he's got an MBA from UCLA. He's a USC undergrad. Like his professional resume is impeccable, but. At no point in his entire career, even working in the commercial and the community development banking group at J.P. Morgan, did he get to be this directly focused on investing in black and Latino communities and not just in a way that extracts value, but in a way that creates it. So he at this stage of his career, he was craving the opportunity to really have you know, his professional skill set intersect with something that uh, and he born and raised in, in Pomona. His family is originally from from. Uh, South LA. So he's got the lived experience in these sorts of communities as well. Um, similar story for our head of asset management who spent almost 25 years at Cal and AEW and Goldman Sachs. And she, uh, in her personal life, been a philanthropist and a community activist. But this represented for her an opportunity to not just be head of asset management and do all the things she had to do at, at her previous employers, but now she gets to think about, well, wait, What's the after-school enrichment program that's really going to work for this primarily Latino community? Um, do we need to have ESL teachers? Do we need like that is an opportunity that exists almost nowhere else in our industry. So without question, the team is why we've had this much success. This because writing it on a, on a, on a piece of paper and then saying to an investor, we're going to do that. That's one thing, but you have to be able to describe to that investor how you can actually execute. And so that, that's where we found success because we have the right team members to go and execute. And it's been incredibly, um, a, lot of, a lot of hard work. Um, I, I think much to my wife's chagrin, I, I, if, I, if I've been in town, it has not been a Saturday or Sunday that I've not been in the office since, since founding the company. But that's because I, I love it, just like I was describing with football, nobody, I, I'm sure Tom Brady is in the Buccaneers facility on Tuesdays because he loves being prepared for winning on Sundays. And that's, that's, how, um, that's how I view you know, what I get to do every day. It's a blessing to, to be able to have this opportunity and, and our entire team feels that way. So, so that's why we've been able to achieve as much as we have. In, in relatively short period of time, but I'm really excited about what the next, if we did all that in a year and a half, the next year and a half is going to be through the moon. So, yeah, I mean, I, I, first of all, I, I, I see it in you. I hear it in your voice. I, I imagine the culture you created is one of passion uh, and, a, and a commitment and a team commitment. I, I, I see your past experiences right before me in terms of what you're building at Langdon Park Capital, I'm guessing the team is all bought in and they're probably a lot like you. <laughs> yeah, they are. They are to some extent, but we have we have a lot of different personalities, which is good for me, which is good for me. You know, I, the, the teams I've been on before were a combination of type A personalities um, or or type A personalities combined with like a lot of, of masculine aggression. From, from the football side and you know i've had to i've learned a lot about myself um just as a person and as a leader while working with my very experienced senior team members we've got we've got um we've got a, a younger associate who brings a much different perspective and point of view my my executive assistant and office manager she was previously, previously in her career, she was an executive assistant to um, commissioner of Major League Baseball. Like, so she's got a, a whole different perspective. So I'm learning every day, and we aren't all the same. That's, that's probably why we get we get um, such good outcomes when we go sit down in the investment committee because we have this shared passion for lifting people, um, and specifically for lifting Black and Latino people. But we we don't all come at it from the same perspective. You know, we've got we've got two very senior and, and um, experienced women on the team. Um, 
We've got we've got uh, people who live in have lived in multi generational households on the team. So that brings a different perspective. But again, combine that with just their, their subject matter expertise, and I feel like we got um, superpowers. <laughs> and you're focused on LA or Southern California and, and East Coast. Is that where your priorities so are? Right two now? of our primary markets are, are, are Southern California. Our, our firm is headquartered here in Los Angeles, um, and and so we bought assets in uh, South LA and East Hollywood and West Covina, which is in the San Gabriel Valley, about, about 20, 20 minutes outside of downtown LA. Uh, we're also focused on the East Coast, the greater, the greater metropolitan area around Washington, DC. Uh, two months ago, we hired an amazing senior leader to, to be on the ground for us in Washington, DC. We think that's one of the tremendous growth areas for us in the next year to three years. And then we're also very focused on Northern California. Um, so primarily East, uh, East Oakland, um, East Bay. But again, think of submarkets that are high growth, high cost of living. You find, you find a, a large number of Black and Latino residents who uh, kind of make up the, the economic engine of that city. They are, they are middle class workers who don't qualify for housing right. subsidy. Right. But unfortunately, in these high cost areas, they can't afford um, to purchase a single family home. So they're renters by necessity, but they well, that's, work, that's really the definition, the of, definition work, of workforce, workforce housing. housing. And it, it's yeah. a no brainer. And yet you really have to be intentional about, okay, just because I'm not going to get the absolute highest rent doesn't mean that this is not a high quality residential community. So that's the way, you know, we don't, we don't, we don't delineate. The two are not mutually exclusive. You can have a high quality residential community that does not does not um, require you to have the highest rent per foot in a market in order for it to be profitable. Well, uh, I want to remind viewers, uh, we are talking to Malcolm Johnson. He is the CEO. I don't think you go by founder, but you're the founder of uh, Langdon Park Capital. Um, we're at the, at the tail end, uh, wrapping up here on the home stretch of our conversation with, with Malcolm. Um, I wanted to ask you, uh, I know how much time you're putting into Langdon Park Capital, but I also know you also give back. You're involved with a lot of nonprofit organizations. I think you still, or you maybe you still lecture at some you know, colleges and universities. I think you even have some involvement still with the NFL. Um, talk about the giving back part of Malcolm Johnson. So, so without question, that's one of the biggest blessings of being in this position. You know, being able, being able to to pour into nonprofit organizations that are doing uh, great work in communities that that need it the most. One of the, the the biggest passions I've got is is in uplifting young people and providing them with opportunities to to learn and hopefully teach me. Um, I. I I, I can't say I'm surprised um, by this, this next thing, but it was one of the highlights of the company. Um, this summer, we had an intern uh, who, who just retired from, and he hasn't formally retired yet, so there's still a chance he, he may play again. But he, he had an 11-year NFL career, Super Bowl MVP, USC graduate who reached out to me, and because of the football connection, we met each other five or six years ago, we stayed in touch and he, he's always been, um, he's always been incredibly gracious about um, kind of picking my brain and coming to me for advice on some of his entrepreneurial ventures. But he reached out to me this spring and said, I'd like to, I'd like to intern with the company. I want to learn the real estate private equity business. And, and for three months, he, he sat on our investment committees. He was with us through a critical period of the company's growth as we closed on our first four acquisitions. This summer, and and more than anything else, you know, obviously he had the least um, real estate, real estate private equity experience of anybody on the team. But his attitude, his humility, his willingness to to ask the tough questions and with with no level of embarrassment, ask a basic question, and then take in that answer and come back with the second or third question. It really pushed us to get better answers in investment committee. That's what um, I love. Like provide and, and so now he's applying to the, the top business schools in the country, and I'm sure he's going to be incredibly successful. I told him he's got a home here. Uh, his name is Malcolm Smith. He, he's a former Seattle Seahawk, and, and he's played for 
three other NFL teams and, and been just incredible at every stop. But that's that's the give back. You know, so we got we got as much from him as probably he got from us. And I feel the same way about, you know, when we do things with the Brotherhood Crusade or the Crenshaw family YMCA. Um, it's it's all it's a blessing to be in a position to do that. And and giving more and doing more allows us to receive more. So it's um it's a two-way street, and and we're just as, we're just as grateful to have the opportunity as probably those organizations are to have us. That's that's great, great story. Well, look, I've got I've got two more questions for you. Um, tell me a little bit about your family. I know that's important to you. Yeah, the the, the best part of life is is um, is the family, and I've been blessed. My wife, I'm now 21 years, and I met when I was a freshman in college. And, and we've we've dated and, and been married um, for for the better part of two decades. And um, you know, at this point, we've been together more years than we haven't. So that's a blessing. We've we've raised three beautiful children, two of whom still live at home with us. Our our oldest is a sophomore at the University of Pennsylvania. She she interned with the company this summer as well. She she did um, a great job working on marketing and asset management. Even though she's a she's a biochemistry major and, and pre med student at Penn. Her perspective was valuable. She helped us step into the 21st century social media wise as a company. Um, and our two boys, uh, we've got a we've got a 16 year old junior in high school and an eight year old third grader who every day they um, they force me to be a dad. You don't get any days off from being a parent. And and I love them for uh, for making me do my job every day. Um, so without question, family is, is the best part of. Um, the best part of why we're here. I, I couldn't agree more. And, and so I wanted to leave with the final question here. Um, what look, you're, 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 you're obviously you're a black man. You're in uh, an industry that has uh, historically and frankly still is, um, I think, predominantly populated uh, by a white or Caucasian uh Work, you know, professional cadre of, uh, of folks. Um, uh, though I think some progress is is being made. Um, what advice would you give, especially to young Black and Latino people, in terms of going into commercial real estate or banking or both? So first and foremost, you have to have knowledge of of self. You have to know who you are. It's important that you, going back to what my parents taught, my brothers and I, you have to be very comfortable with your own history um, and and why you're unique. Because there's so many um, kind of falsehoods and, and narratives around Black people in this country, Latino people in this country, that if you if you don't do the work to understand who you are and, and you know, where your where your your culture um, has been additive, that can be detrimental, and you have to embrace that first and foremost. But beyond beyond that, you know, once you've done those things, once you know yourself and you love yourself, then you have to have a technical skill set. That's true for anyone, whether you're white, black, Latino. You have to have a way to help. The firm that you're you're seeking to join, you have to have a way to, to um, help investors <laughs> make money. You, you need a technical skill set, and and fortunately, you know there are a lot of programs in schools, and there, now there are internships that provide that technical skill set. But then you have to think about well, what's the value add, and and how am I adding to this organization? How is this organization learning from my perspective? Uh, so your technical skill set, look, when you're an intern, when you are an analyst, when you're an associate, you get hired to do a job. Like you have to be able to do that job really well. And that doesn't matter whether you're black or Latino or white or, or uh, Ukrainian. You have, to, you have to do those things really well in order to just meet the minimum qualifications. But then you have to think about beyond that, you know, what's the additional ROI for me in this role? And, and I think because commercial real estate um, is such a convergence of, of the macro economy, you know, it's where we live, work, shop, uh, play. That is 
where your unique perspective can be so additive. And so I, I would I would say, number one, make sure you are well aware of who you are and you are embrace that. But then you have to have a technical skill set that can that can help whatever organization it is that you plan to join and do whatever job you're hired to do extremely well. Um, but make sure you are finding a way to, to add a different perspective that can, again, increase the ROI on you being in that seat versus someone else being in that, in that seat. And, and success will follow. Um, if you're fortunate like I am, you'll, you'll have you know, really good mentors and, and champions along the way who want to see you succeed. That's always a, a necessary part of, of finding, um, finding your way. But this is, this is the best possible time and, and I mean this with all sincerity because we still have many, many challenges in front of us. But this is the best possible time to be a black entrepreneur in this country. That does not mean it's easy. That does not mean that um, we don't face challenges. But I would much rather be trying to launch Langdon Park Capital into the stratosphere and get to $5 billion in AUM in, in the third quarter of 2022 than fall of 1956. Or, or worse yet, you know. So, so when I think about it that way, um, I can only I can only have optimism, and um, I'm really excited about what the future holds. We, we've been incredibly blessed to be doing this with with great partners who uh, believe in our vision and trust us. So, you know, we want to we want to re repay that trust with um, hard work and preparation, and, and success will follow. Well, that's a, that's really that's a great note to end on. Uh, Malcolm Johnson, CEO, founder, Langdon Park Capital. What an inspiring story. I, I can't tell you how much I enjoyed talking to you today, and I, I learned a hell of a lot. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you, Tim. Appreciate it. All right. Well, that concludes our podcast today. I'm Tim Jamal, CEO of NAF SoCal. Please tune in for our next podcast series, which uh, will come out uh, intermittently throughout the next few months. And uh, Malcolm, thank you again. Thank mm -hmm. you.